Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. We'll be in verses 15 through 37 this morning as we look at the, the Spirit-empowered servant king. Uh, it's been often attributed to uh, one of the sort of founding fathers of this nation, Benjamin Franklin, who's supposed to have said that the only things in life that are certain are death and taxes. Y'all have heard that before. That is to mean that any person who, who has the pleasure of living on this earth will, without a doubt, experience and succumb to both. doesn't matter how good your doctor is. doesn't matter how good your accountant is. You will experience death and taxes in this life. Now, I have a mother-in-law who... I only have one. A mother-in-law as though I have more than... I ha- my mother-in-law uh, is, is a certified tax preparer. And she helps us to get a maximum refund each year, right? But we still have to pay taxes. And she lives in Atlanta, so I'm not going to give you her number. She's already busy enough as it is. But, uh, but it doesn't matter how good your doctor is, you, you're going to die. And it doesn't matter how good your accountant is, you're going to have to pay some taxes. It's just inevitable. Someone once told me that I'll get old one day if I live long enough. The truth of life is that there are, there are some things like death and taxes and old age that are just inevitable. There are things that are just coming down, the, coming down the pike regardless of what you do to try to mitigate those things or keep them from... They are going to come. It is. They are inevitable. They're unavoidable, undeniable. But death and taxes and old age are not the only certainties we will face in life. Perhaps more than death or taxes... More important than those, more, more telling than those, more deserving of our attention is the inevitability of each and every one of us standing before God to give an account for our lives. Most specifically, giving account for what we have done with His Son, Christ. This far in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, and again in our passage even today, we find that Jesus' repeated work of teaching and healing and fulfilling the prophecy of the coming Messiah eventually brings all people to a place of ultimate acceptance or rejection of his identity as Savior King. He just keeps doing stuff that points and brings people to a place of having to make a decision about him. Making a choice about, one will, about what one will do with Jesus is an inevitability in this life for you and for me, for everyone. And our text again today brings us face to face with that reality. That said, let's look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 37. You'll remember as we finished verse 14 last week, we saw the Pharisees beginning to conspire to find a way to destroy Jesus, to have him killed, to stop his ministry and end his life. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, aware of what the Pharisees are doing, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make uh, him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, 
that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, well, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. Yet again, Jesus, what he says and what he does is bringing people, pointing people to a place where they've got to make a decision about who he is and what they're going to do with this man. As we look at this passage in the three sort of sections that we see there, we see three different things about Jesus and about uh, his work to bring people to that place of making that choice that is inevitable, either to choose or to reject him. First, we see in verses 15 through 21 that Jesus is, in fact, the servant king, the promised servant king of the Old Testament. In verse 15, there we see Jesus, who's aware of the plotting of the Pharisees who are trying to kill him. He's now pulling away from that place. He's leaving where the Pharisees were so that uh, their plot might not pick up speed and, and that he might not be put to death. The time is not right yet. He pulls away from there and crowds begin to follow him. And as they follow him, he heals all the sick people that they bring to him, including in verse 16, uh, a man who is uh, 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 not in verse 16, excuse me, in verse 22, we see him healing a man, a demon possessed man who is both blind and mute. So he's healing others like that as well. But in verse 16, in response to the healings, Jesus turns to the crowd and he tells them what? Don't tell anybody about what you see. Don't tell anybody what just happened. We might wonder, why is Jesus doing this? If he's really the Messiah, why wouldn't he want people to know? Well, Matthew tells us plainly in verse 17 that Jesus gives this command in light of his healings, gives this command to be silent in order to fulfill prophecy, right? He ordered them not to make, them, not to make him known. And this was to fill, fulfill what was spoken in the prophet Isaiah. And here Matthew goes on to give his longest Old Testament quotation, his longest uh, quote from the prophet Isaiah, who, by the way, is Matthew's favorite of the prophets. He quotes Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3, which is one of the several divine servant or suffering servant passages that we have in the prophet uh, Isaiah. These prophecies that point to a suffering servant king who will come to rescue Israel. And from this prophecy that Matthew quotes, we find three things about Jesus, this servant king. First, verse 18, he is sent by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Behold, my, chosen, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. God the Father, 
who spoke to Isaiah in the Old Testament is the one who sends God the Son, Jesus, to be this Redeemer King. And it is the Father who bestows upon Jesus the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? He says, I will put my Spirit upon him. We find the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 3 descending upon Jesus at his baptism. There where the uh, voice of the Father is heard saying, what? From Isaiah 42, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the one, the King, who's sent by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But also in verses 19 and 20, we see that he is a servant king, leads with gentleness. 19 and 20 say, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It's a prophecy about the way that, that Jesus will not come with, with flash and panache and, and uh, quarreling with leaders. that are there. And we certainly see the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes quarreling with Jesus. But Jesus isn't quarreling in return. He doesn't come violently. He comes quietly and humbly. In verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Jesus is a gentle and a humble leader, a gentle and a humble king. This we even saw at the end of chapter 11 just a couple of weeks ago. 11, chapter 11, verse 28 and following. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, the servant king, leads his people, calls people to him with gentleness, with humbleness, kindness for those who are lowly in heart, calling the spiritually weary to repentance and faith, to be yoked to him in faith and to have their burdens lifted by his gracious hand. Third, verse 21, the servant king comes for all people. In his name, the Gentiles will hope, Matthew writes. Verse 21, this verse that we just read, does not actually appear in Isaiah 42 in this way. It's more of a summary statement of several verses that come after Isaiah 42, verses 1 and 2, that Matthew is just summing up in one quick sentence. Matthew, who was the most Jewish of the gospel writers, seeks to give us a better and a full understanding of the Old Testament scriptures that most specifically concern Jesus. And he does this all throughout his gospel. We've already seen Isaiah quoted several times in the gospel of Matthew. And as we go on, we'll see it several more. But even in his ministry, in the gospel of Matthew, to to this point, we have seen Jesus offering hope and healing to Gentiles specifically, specifically to non-Jewish people. Remember, he healed that Roman centurion servant in chapter 8, verse 5. He heals those two Gadarene, those two Gentile men who are possessed by demons in 8.28. He declares that Gentiles from all around the world will recline at Abraham's table in the kingdom of God in chapter 8, verse 1. And then, of course, we know that he, at the end of this uh, gospel, Matthew uh, 28, commands his disciples to take the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel that he was proclaiming, to all nations and to all peoples. And in the book of Acts, we see that mission played out where the gospel goes to Gentiles and people from all over the world, whether Jewish or Greek or otherwise, are coming to know Jesus. He comes for all people. The whole of this quotation from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3 that Matthew uses here is to show just yet again that Jesus is fulfilling the promises that God had made about a divine Savior, the servant King. And Jesus is fulfilling all of them perfectly. And in light of this, again, we are reminded to review and to remind ourselves of the Bible's consistent testimony to Jesus. From Genesis uh, 3 and the promise of the 
the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent to Deuteronomy where God promises that another prophet like Moses will rise up to second Samuel where David is given a promise that his kingdom will last forever to Isaiah and the suffering servant prophecies to Joel chapter two when the God says that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh through prophecies in Zechariah and, and even in Malachi, we see this consistent unfolding picture of Jesus. And Matthew, in his gospel, calls us back to that unfolding picture of Jesus time and time again. God's promise of a Messiah in the Old Testament works itself out kind of like a person who's putting together a puzzle. I'm, I'm not a puzzler. Um, I just get irritated with them. But I know some people like puzzles because they're patient and they have kind hearts. And uh, when you make a puzzle, usually what do you do first? What do you start with? The, the outside, right? The edges, right? You look for those pieces that are most clearly uh, defined, most clearly defined the edges of the picture. And then, and then what? You start looking for other pieces that kind of look similar. But some white pieces, maybe some blue, look all look like clouds. You start putting those together in a pile. And maybe some other things, you put those together in a pile that all look the same. You start seeing how they all fit together and how they fit within the boundaries, the borders that you've already put together. And over time, the full picture of that puzzle comes into view. Well, the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament work in much the same way. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we look at some of these prophecies about this coming Savior King and we go, how is that about Jesus? I don't really, that doesn't seem to fit with this other prophecy about Jesus. And what's really going on here? Well, if we read through the Old Testament, I mean, from Genesis through Malachi, and we, we begin to put together these pieces of this prophecy of Jesus, what we see is a, a picture of Jesus unfolding, coming to clarity like a puzzle does. We get the boundaries and then some bits here and some bits here. And over time, throughout the course of Israel's history, the full picture of what the Messiah will look like comes into view. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and we can say, yep, that's him. In Christ, the whole thing, all of this prophecy of a Redeemer comes together. And the full picture of the Messiah is revealed in Jesus. And so, Jesus then, the Spirit-empowered servant king, continues his ministry that he's been called to do, was prophesied that he would do. Moving on from there into verse 22, he goes on to cast out a demon from a man that made him both blind and deaf. And it's in the aftermath of that exorcism that we see the work of the Spirit and the Messiah being rejected. Right? The work of the Spirit and the, uh, that is being done through the Messiah is rejected. Jesus heals this man, makes him able to see, able to speak. And the people are all amazed. And then there are two different reactions that we see. We see skepticism and we see condemnation. Two, two different responses to what Jesus is doing. First, the crowd responds with skepticism. Skepticism asks, when they see something that is hard to believe, skepticism asks the question, is this really true? Can this really be the case? Right? Is this what's really going on? And this is what the crowd does. Their, their question to Jesus, as you'll see in verse 23, they say, can this be the Son of God? Their question is not necessarily one of messianic hope. Now, our English translations don't help us too much with this question because sometimes they, uh, the translation of that, can this be the Son of God? Or maybe your translation says, perhaps this is the Son of God. They're sort of built into that translation into English, a, a messianic expectation, a messianic hope, like, oh my goodness, could this be the Son of God? Kind of like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 when she uh, has this conversation with Jesus and he reveals all these things about her and she runs back to her town and says, could this be the Christ? Right? With messianic hope and expectation. But that's not really what the crowds are asking here. 
in their question in the original language, it's actually started with the negation, not, right? So as to say, no way this could be the son of God. No way this could be the son of David. We see the things he's doing. No way. We're skeptical. The question is not one of messianic hope so as to say, oh my goodness, could this be the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for? Instead, they're asking, this can't really be the Messiah, can it? In this case, their, their skepticism, their, their, their unwillingness to trust what Jesus is doing is fueled by an, an incomplete understanding of the, who, who the Messiah would be. In their expectation of a Messiah, they're looking at, at just one piece of the puzzle, but they're not looking at the whole picture. They forget that, that Jesus' healing and teaching is part of his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That he wouldn't just come to free Israel from their sin and from their captors, but he would also come to, to offer freedom and liberation from sin for all people. And so, in their desire for a warrior king who would free them politically, they missed the fact that the Messiah was going to do all these other things as well. And so they're skeptical. But their skepticism is not quite as bad as a condemnation of the Pharisees. Where skepticism says, is this really true? Could this really be true? I'm doubtful. Let's see all the facts. Condemnation, on the other hand, says, this most certainly is not true. Condemnation doesn't ask questions. Condemnation makes declarations. The Pharisees, unwilling to even entertain the possibility that Jesus could be the Messiah, go so far as to begin to plot to destroy Jesus. And they look for evidence to prove that he's anything but the Messiah. And so in order to do that, they accuse Jesus here in this passage of casting out demons in the, by the spirit of Beelzebul, by the spirit of Satan. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. In making this accusation, they're trying to make Jesus out to be a liar. They're trying to make him out to be a, a charlatan, a snake oil salesman, uh, an undercover agent for the other team, an enemy of God. Such an accusation like this, which is a, which is a, a heavy accusation to make, Deserves a response. And Jesus gives a really, really good one. Right? If you want to learn how to argue with somebody with grace and, and compassion and yet with, with great conviction, um, study how Jesus argues with people and answers their, their, their condemnation and their accusations. Right? Jesus in verses 25 through 30 gives us a reasoned response. He doesn't respond out of anger. does not respond out of frustration. He just gives a calm, reasoned response. And there... He says, look, guys, if I cast out demons by the power of Satan, then then two things are also true. First, Satan is at war with his own army. If I cast out demons, if I cast out Satan's troops by the power of Satan himself, Satan is at war with his own army. It is true that any entity that's fighting against itself can never ensure or experience victory. Our own country's civil war in the 1860s nearly destroyed this nation. Even presently, today, we see civil war destroying the nation and the people of Syria. Anytime a nation is at war with itself, it begins to crumble. The infrastructure that is there, that, that whether, whether governmental infrastructure or just physical infrastructure, it all begins to crumble and fall apart when a nation is divided against itself. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, do you even understand how backwards your thinking is? Do you even understand how, how wrong that accusation is? Right? If I'm doing this in the power of Satan, then I'm undermining myself and whatever it is that Satan wants to do. Oh, and more than that, guys, if Jesus, if I'm casting out demons by Satan, Jesus says, then also your Jewish exorcists are servants of Satan as well. He says in verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? 
Therefore, they will be your judges. There's not much in the Bible in the, in the way of uh, attestation of Jewish exorcist practices, but there are some in, in early histories of the Jews. Uh, Josephus, who's a second century Jewish historian, uh, writes about some traveling sort of itinerant Jewish exorcists who are casting out demons. And Jesus here admits as well that there were uh, Jewish exorcists that cast demons out of people there in his own day. In response to the accusation of the Pharisees that he casts out demons by the prince of the demons, Jesus says, look, if I'm guilty of working with Satan, what about these other guys who are your brothers, who are your sons, who are other fellow servants of Israel? What about those other guys that are doing the same thing? Who are they casting them out in the name of? And then he points to, in the context of his reasoned response, an alternate and a better reasoned, a more reasonable source of his power. Not by the spirit of Beelzebul, but by the spirit of God, Right? Jesus says in verse 28, but if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then a couple of other things are true as well. Now his condition, right? A conditional sentence, conditional statement is a, if then sort of statement. He says, if it is by the spirit of God, I cast out demons. Then a couple of other things are true. The kind of condition, conditional statement that Jesus is making here is not like a real condition. Like if this, then this, it is since this is true, then also these things are true, right? He's speaking from a position of certainty, position of truth. It is certainly true that Jesus casts out demons by the spirit of God. And because he does so, two other things are true. First, the end of verse 27, end of verse 28, excuse me, the kingdom of God has come. If it's by the spirit of God, I cast out demons. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Because Jesus does, in fact, command demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that is true. It is then true that the kingdom of God is in their midst. I'll call our attention back to the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. This is what the prophet Joel says there. It shall come to pass, he's speaking of the day of the Lord, this, this coming uh, uh, day of judgment when God will, will pour out his, his judgment and his grace. He says, it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Jesus is saying those days are coming. Those days have come. The, the kingdom of God is here and the spirit is being poured out on all people. And the Spirit is empowering me to cast demons out of possessed people. There in Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, on that day of the Lord, God promises he would pour out his Spirit on all people. That, the, that this would be a sign of the presence of the kingdom and that the end of all things was near. And in Jesus, we have the very Son of God, the servant king, full of and working in the Holy Spirit, demonstrating that he is the king and that the kingdom is here and that the day of the Lord is very near. But also, if the kingdom of God is here in advancing, and Jesus is in fact casting out demons by the Spirit of God, a second thing is true. And the second thing is that Satan is bound and his influence is severely hindered. To illustrate this point, Jesus creates a word picture about robbing a strong man's house. Right? He says, how can you rob a strong man's house unless you first go in and tie up and restrain that strong man? If you're able to bind that strong man, that guard, then you can just waltz through that house and take whatever you want for yourself. Normally, when we get word pictures like this, parables like this, we're accustomed to the, to the robber type, to the burglar type being the bad character. But here, Jesus is comparing himself to a burglar who binds Satan and liberates Satan of all of his various possessions. 
This is a shocking picture, but when we, when we remind ourselves that, that it is the souls of men and women that Satan seeks to possess as he pulls them away from God, then when the soul burglar Jesus ties up the devil and plunders his house, taking back the souls that belong to him and leaving Satan empty-handed, we look at that story and we cheer. Right? Praise Jesus, soul burglar. We cheer for the victory that, that Jesus has over Satan because he plunders Satan's house. But again, we're also confronted with the importance of deciding whose side we're on. Jesus says, either you're with me or you're against me. Either you're gathering with me or you're scattering. And that's because it's exactly, and because that's exactly what Jesus is getting to in his response to the Pharisees, right? He's saying, look, either you're for me or you're against me. Either I'm doing this in the power of Satan or I'm doing this in the power of the Spirit. Y'all decide. And in verses 30 and 32, 30 through 32, he gives them a, a caution against rejecting him. A caution against being against Jesus. In verse 30, Jesus says, ever so plainly, you either for me or against me. That is to say, there is no middle ground here. There's no neutrality. There's no, there's no mediating position here. But listen, even for the one opposed to Jesus, there is hope. There is hope. Jesus says in verse 31 that there is forgiveness. For every kind of sin for the person who opposes Jesus. There's forgiveness for every kind of sin. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Even in verse 32, any sort of sin can be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, Jesus says, will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. For the one who has been opposed to Jesus, maybe for decades... Maybe you're here today and you are late in years and you have been opposed to Jesus your entire life. There's still hope for you. Forgiveness is still possible, Jesus says. Every sin can be forgiven. No matter how old or how young or how bad or how good you are, you stand in need of a Savior. And Jesus says there is forgiveness for every sin but one. Every sin but one. He says there's a group for whom there is not forgiveness. And these are those who have committed, as Jesus says, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Knowing that there is such a sin, an unforgivable sin like this, uh, often causes us to wonder whether we have committed it, right? If there is such a sin of which I cannot be forgiven, I don't want to have committed it. That's a bad place to be. And many of us, even believers, maybe especially believers, struggle with, no, what, knowing this, what, what, struggle with knowing what this sin is. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? How do I know if I've committed it? How do I know if I'm committing it? In the context of this passage, the nature of this unforgivable sin is actually fairly clear. And so let's look at the context here to understand what Jesus is saying. First, notice the audience of Jesus' statement. Who's he speaking to? The Pharisees. And what is it that the Pharisees have done? Well, they've been opposing Jesus And they've accused him of doing in the power of Satan what Jesus, we know, has been doing in the power of the Spirit. They have openly credited to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God himself. We read in verse 18 that Jesus is, in fact, the servant king who works in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the power of Satan. So knowing who Jesus is and what the Pharisees accuse him of doing... We can say in the context of Matthew 12, very simply, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unrepentantly, that is, never changing, attributing to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. 
unrepentantly attributing to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. Put another way, and this is in your worship guide. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the defiant and unchanging rejection and denial of the work of the Holy Spirit to bring sinners to turn from their sin and to trust Jesus. The blasphemy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time sin. It is a sin that pervades and invades our lives. It is a sin that we commit each and every day and each and every moment when we never trust Christ for salvation until the moment of death. Friends, this is not a sin that believers commit. If you're a Christian, you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation. Know today you have not committed the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. If you're struggling with wondering whether you have committed this sin, if you're sitting here today wondering, oh my gosh, have I ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit? And you're racking your brain because you don't want to be guilty of that sin. Uh, Friends, that's not evidence that you are committing that sin. That's actually evidence that you are listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and leading of the Holy Spirit in your life and not committing that sin. It is true that an individual can speak against Christ and his works. They can deny, they can defame, they can, they can uh, outright condemn Jesus and his works. But they can be convicted by the Holy Spirit and repent of blasphemy against Jesus and receive forgiveness. But if one goes their entire life experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit toward the truth of who Christ is, pointing us to uh, our need for a Savior, and that person walks continually in rejection of that truth and in opposition to that truth, then there cannot be forgiveness. We know that forgiveness of sins only comes through being united to Christ in faith. And if someone never places faith in Christ, they cannot be forgiven of their sins. They stand responsible for every sin committed against God on the day of judgment. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Seeing the work of Christ, reading God's word, being exposed to who Jesus is and what he does, and continually and unrepentantly saying, nope, I don't want it. I don't want it. God, I see that you're gracious. I see that you're good. I see that you sent your son to forgive people of sins, and I don't want it. Don't want it. And maintaining that position until the day you die. That is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Friends today, don't don't be guilty of that sin. If you're a believer here today, have confidence in knowing you have not committed that sin. And if you're worried about committing it, that's the Holy Spirit working in you to grow you in holiness and closeness to Christ. But friend, if you don't know Jesus today, don't continue to walk in unrepentance. Don't continue to walk in faithlessness with regard to Jesus. And in response, rather than that, do this. Pay attention to the work of the Holy Spirit. And learn, Christian, to doubt your doubts. Pay attention to the work of the Holy Spirit and learn to doubt your doubts. There is these days a sort of scientific claim that there can be no God, that there is no God. The scientific community has, they have affirmed it, right? It is in stone. There is no God, cannot be. But the problem with that scientific statement, so-called scientific statement, is that it's not a statement of observation and reproduction. It's a philosophical persuasion. It's a persuasion that we are targeted by regularly in the culture in which we live. It's a persuasion that seeks to cause us to doubt our faith, to doubt the claims of Scripture, to say there is no God and this can't be His Word and there's no way that sin is real and and, and if sin's not real, you don't need a Savior. That's what the world would have us to think. But Scripture instead calls us to doubt our doubts and to doubt those that would cast aspersion on our faith, and instead, to, to, in doubting our doubts, to turn then and trust the true one. Doubt your doubts and trust the true one. A poet, Joseph Solomon, 
writes this in his spoken word piece. And I'll read it because it's so much better than what I could say. In his spoken word piece called A Shadow of a Doubt, he says this. God, just make me feel like I'm not crazy. God, let me know that I'm not just making friends with these walls when I pray. I'm not questioning you. I just got questions. Don't leave me here. And then he changes. He shifts in his poem to the voice of God. He says, my child, my child. When it seems like you have all the right answers, but never enough answers. You have all the right questions, but never enough answers. And your faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of your palms. I told you, faith the size of mustard seeds can rearrange whole landscapes and can turn mountains into highways. Faith comes from my words, so maybe you've cuffed your ears. My child, don't be childish. But consider the child whose faith has not quite learned the definition of impossible Have your questions. I'm not telling you to have a blind faith. I'm telling you to consider the blind men who had faith and believed my words before they were even able to see me. Consider the birds that eat from my hand and do not fall from the sky without my consent. So how much more will I love the ones that I died for? Before you doubt me, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts and you will see they are just as empty as the tomb that I walked from. I am the author and finisher of your faith. I've never started a work that I will not finish. And it feels like you're drowning in a sea of your questions. Just know that I'm there. I'm there. Like when I drowned in the Red Sea of my blood for you and these hands that took holes will hold you. And when I told you that I will love you forever, I meant it. Don't you see these rings in my hands? See, we are married for better or for worse through sickness and in health, through faith or through questions till death brings us closer. You are mine and I am yours. I promise. Friends, pay attention to the work of the Holy Spirit. Learn to doubt your doubts and to trust continually the true one. Finally, we see in keeping with where Jesus left off, Verses 33 through 37, indifference, friends, is impossible. Indifference about Jesus is impossible. Everyone makes a decision about Christ. Jesus says every tree can be known by its fruit. Good trees make good fruit. Rotten trees make rotten fruit. I have an apricot tree in my backyard that did not produce fruit last year. And if I was not renting the house in which I lived, I would cut the tree down and plant a new one. But because I pay rent to somebody else who owns the house, it's not really my tree. But it's not bearing fruit. It's not a good tree. Yet this is just another illustration to show to his audience that the nature and orientation of our hearts will be known by what we do. It will be known by how we act. Or as Jesus says, by what we say. He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever wanted to know what a person is really like? Meet somebody and you'd like to get to know them. You really want to know what sort of person they are. Are they a good person? Are they a wicked person? Do they care about others or are they selfish? You want to know what a person's really like? Just have a conversation with them and listen. Just listen. Pay attention to what they speak about. Uh, uh, pay attention to what they speak about the most. Pay attention to how they speak about others. Pay attention to how they speak to others. See who they do and do not speak in front of. And what topics might make them go silent. You want to know what somebody is like? Listen to what they say. Because our mouths betray our hearts every day. 
all the time. Our mouths will always betray our hearts. If our hearts are wrong, our words will be, uh, excuse me, if our hearts are right, our speech is, is kind and it is salted with truth and with love. But if our hearts are wrong, our speech and our words are peppered with angst and frustration and impatience and unforgiveness. And because our words betray the true state of our hearts, Jesus says that it will be by our words that we are judged by God. Everyone will be judged by God on what they do with Christ, but we are judged based upon our speech. Jesus says, verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Our speech, Jesus says, either justifies or condemns us. How can that be so? I thought, I thought my, my justification was by faith in Christ. I thought it was a heart thing. Well, we know and remind ourselves often that it's, it's not what we say or what we do that earns God's forgiveness to us. There's nothing we can do to, to merit God's favor and salvation. It's just a gift of his grace to us by faith in Christ. So when Jesus says that our words will either justify or condemn us, what he's doing is just simply continuing to play on the image of mouths that betray hearts. Right? Words of unrepentance and disbelief reflect hearts that are the same. Unrepentant and disbelieving. Mouths that speak with humility and grace and a love for Christ do so only out of hearts that are touched and changed by the Holy Spirit to love Jesus our King. There will most certainly be a day when God will judge us by our words. But he judges our words only because they are true and trustworthy indicators of the status of our hearts. Each one of us will face that judgment, Scripture says. Each man and woman will stand before a holy and a just God at the end of time to give an account for what he or she has done with the knowledge of Jesus. Whether on the basis of the evidence of Jesus' life and ministry, on the evidence of the testimony of Scripture, on the evidence of the moving and the Holy Spirit among us, we trust and cling to Jesus by faith in Him. Or, based on the same evidence... We choose to ignore, reject, even condemn Jesus as a liar, a lunatic, a mere religious fanatic. Either way, on that day of judgment, we will give account for what we have done with Jesus, whether we have trusted him or rejected him. And so we can know this, though, this morning, that whether you trust or reject Jesus, your, your, your decision is always an informed decision. Not a single person chooses to trust Christ or to reject him out of position of ignorance. We know who he is. We can know who he is because his life is on display before us in God's holy word. Old Testament and New Testament, all of it pointing to either forward or backward to Christ and and the necessity of being joined to him by faith for salvation. All of this. But we don't just have this that speaks to um, Christ's life and and who he was as this promised servant king. We also have the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying as much here. The Holy Spirit moves in the hearts of people. The Holy Spirit does things. The Holy Spirit changes people to see the truth of Scripture and and the depravity of their own souls and their own sin and their need for a Savior. And some people look at the Holy Spirit square in the face, Bible in hand, and say, nope, I don't want it. It's not an uninformed decision that we make about Christ. It is an informed decision. It is always an informed decision because the information is ever before us and the work of the Holy Spirit is ever around us. Friend, today, if you're trusting Jesus, again, just have confidence that your decision about Christ is an informed decision. 
You're not naive. You're not stupid. You're not dumb. You're not slow. What you're doing is, is being humble and, and wise enough to trust that you don't know it all. And that you can't do it all. You're trusting the one who can. Friend, if you don't know Christ today and you are walking in continual rejection and denial of Jesus, know this today. You make that decision and you will stand before God to give account for the things that you have done in your life and what you have done for Jesus. And you will not be able to plead on that day, I was ignorant. I just didn't know. Gosh, sorry. Because you have the evidence in front of you. Friend, you've seen it here today. The Holy Spirit is working on your heart today, calling you to see the truth of Scripture and to trust it. To believe it. Don't deny him any longer. Don't, don't risk standing before a God with the only, uh, just and holy God with the only defense of ignorance. Of, I didn't know. Because on that day, that, that defense won't stand. It's got no legs. During the Enlightenment period, there was a, a philosopher, semi-theologian, scientist named Blaise Pascal. You may be aware of him or may know his name. And Blaise Pascal made an argument. Uh, it's often called Pascal's Wager. Essentially says this. Look, every person must make a decision as to whether there is a God or there is not a God. And it's a smarter bet to place your money on, on that there is a God and to live your life that way than to place your money uh, on the idea that there is no God. Why? Because if you bet your life on the fact that there is a God and that what he says about himself is true in Scripture, you stand to gain everything. But if you wager against God, knowing all that Scripture says and, and there is a God, you lose everything. But if there's no God and you wager on God, you don't lose anything either. So, so he says, wager on God. Bet on God. Bet that there is a God. But, but there's actually a really sort of major flaw in Pascal's wager. Because Pascal's wager is based on the fact that we don't know what's on the other side of all the cards. If you've ever played poker, and you're all Baptist, so I know that you don't. But Texas Hold'em, you will watch it on ESPN. Right? You, get, you get two cards that are dealt to you, and you can see those. And then, they're, and then you make bets based on the cards that you know that you see. Um, but you've got to make a hand of five cards out of five more cards that will be eventually turned over on the table in front of you. But you don't know what those cards are. So you, you either see the cards that you have, and you think, gosh, I've got a 7-2 I've offsuit. That's a really bad hand, um, so I've heard. And so I'm not going to bet. I'm going to fold. I'm not going to play this hand. Or maybe you've got pocket aces, which means you have two aces in your hand, or so I've heard. Um, and so that's a good hand. Pair of aces in my hand, that's good. I'm a bet big. Okay, because I know that whatever comes up, I'm gonna have a good chance of of winning this hand. So we place bets on a little bit of what we see, but but not on all of the cards being on the table. The thing is, in poker, you you can't just let the bet go by and not do anything. You can't choose to 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 not fold and not bet. You can't just sit there and wait till all the cards come up and then make a bet. That's not how poker works. Same way, we don't have the luxury of not betting or not making a decision about Christ. And that's what Pascal is getting at. No person has the luxury of sitting out that choice. But what Pascal misses in his argument, and I think he's, he's making his argument to try to convince non-believers that, that to, to place faith in the fact that there is a God to begin with. But what he doesn't give them is the full information. That we're not betting out of ignorance. 
that we're not betting because, uh, on cards that we've not yet seen. Scripture tells us, Scripture places all of the cards on the table for us to see. And our decision about Jesus then, our wager on Christ, is not an ignorant decision. It's not a naive decision. It's not a stupid or a dumb decision. It's an infinitely wise and humble and right decision. Why? Because all the cards are on the table. God leaves us no mystery about himself or how it is to be saved in in the pages of this book. And we praise God for it because it is an informed decision that we can make about Jesus, the Savior, Servant, King, who fulfills the prophecy of the Old Testament and brings us into a right relationship with God. Again, friends, believers today, those of you who are trusting Jesus, have confidence that your decision to follow Christ is an informed decision and a good one. 